it's really a pleasure to be here um, at St. Mark's. Actually, I, I found the community at St. Mark's 12 years ago. I was, um, I was at a conference in Cambridge and I had a flight from Heathrow and I had just finished reading The Good Heart, which is this wonderful book I'm sure many of you have read, which is the dialogue between Lawrence and the Dalai Lama. And um, I had done a little bit of a Google search and I, and I found that they had a center in St. Mark's at Middleton Square. I had no idea where that is. I did a search, found out it was somewhere near St. Pancras. The train from Cambridge arrives at St. Pancras. So I had a couple of hours to kill before I went to Heathrow and I wandered around asking people. I'm still in the generation where you don't look on your phone, you ask people. And nobody knew where this was. And I, I remember very distinctly, I was at the corner somewhere and I was about to give up. I was about to give up and turn around and sort of take the, the, uh, the Heathrow Express and I just you know, asked one more person and they said, oh yeah, it's, you know, yeah. And I arrived here um, and I think it was Liz Watson who was here. So she introduced me to all the material and she told me that Lawrence was actually teaching at Georgetown that semester, which is of course where I was living. I was living in, in DC. And so it was one of these incredible serendipitous moments that, you know, life throws at us. Anyway, so it's great to be here. Um, this place has a special, um, has special meaning for me. Um, so what I tend to do when I talk about meditation is I, I tend to talk about it in terms of my own experience and let people decide whether or not that experience is relevant to them. Um, you know, as we all know, <laughs> meditation is an individual experience. And I think it brings, even though people talk about general benefits, I think it gives specific benefits to people based on their own needs. And I have found that I have my own needs, or let's call them weaknesses. So today you're going to hear all about my weaknesses. <laughs> um, and the fact that I'm able to talk about these is in and itself a, a, a one of the benefits of meditation, because I realize that I have lots of weaknesses, but I am not my weaknesses. Um, just as I have lots of thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. And that, that experience has been inc incredibly helpful for me. Um, as Kate has said, you know, I worked at the IMF for 28 years, which is a long time, um, until last September. And I'm making a transition to academic life, uh, which I'm enjoying very much. Um, and for 14 of those years at the IMF, I was the general counsel, so I, I, I was the chief legal advisor to the managing director of the board. I, I managed a department of about 130 people. Um, and I can't tell you how central meditation was to my work at the fund. Um, people asked me, well, where did you find the time? And my response to that was, well, that's really not the issue. The issue is whether or not it's important. 
if something is important to you, if picking up your child from school is important, you don't say, well, I don't have time to pick up my child from school. You know, you, you just give it the priority. So it was a very central part of my life. And it's not so much that, you know, I consciously experienced meditation being a big difference, but I surely noticed it when I didn't do it. I really noticed it when I didn't do it. Um, so the other thing I, I have become relatively comfortable talking about is that while meditation gave me a lot of professional benefits, that's not why I meditated. So I make a distinction between the benefits and the motivation. The motivation for me was that I had a, a spiritual dimension in my life that I wanted to develop. And meditation was, for me, the most meaningful way of doing that. And, and I, you know, I, I do this course with Lawrence and Bertrand Bohr in, uh, in um, Georgetown at the business school. And I'm very open about that, and as, as Bertrand is. Bertrand and I are the same position, as you can imagine. Lawrence also does it from a spiritual perspective. And it's interesting because even though we talk about meditation in a purely secular context, it, it doesn't turn off the students at all. On the contrary, I think they feel that there's a greater authenticity um, to it. So I, I often, when we talk at the executive committee about how to deal with the secular spiritual dimension of meditatio, I always feel that we should be very unapologetic about it and just say to people, you know, there's this, there are these secular benefits, but we happen to do it because we have a spiritual dimension that we want to nourish, but people are free to do it for whatever reason they want. And I think it's, I think people respond positively to that. Um, so let me talk a little bit about some of the very specific benefits. Um, and I, the one I always start off with when I talk about meditation is this wonderful expression that John Maine has, which I think he refers to as the spirit of intention, the spirit of attention. I was reading this book, this wonderful book by Simone Weil, who I'm sure some of you have read, Waiting for God, where she talks about the, you know, the spiritual dimension of attention, of being in the present moment. And... Um, she talks about how she would say that our father continuously until she could say it without any distractions whatsoever. And I thought to myself, whoa, this sounds very familiar. Um, but for me, this became very important because I realized that trying to cultivate that spirit of attention outside of my meditation helped me deal with sort of the, the anxiety of my day. And so now I'm revealing one of my weaknesses, which is that I often found myself, as the day progressed, going from concern to serious worry to panic about the, the number of things that were happening and the, the, the decisions that I would have to make. And I found myself almost going into sort of a, a, you know, locking up because of that, 
being in meetings with people where I was really not at the meeting, I was worrying about the next meeting or thinking about what happened in the previous meeting. And I was really never there, quite frankly. Um, and I, meditation helped me slow my day down by learning that actually I had more time than I thought, that I could get it all done. And even if I didn't get it all done, I would get it done tomorrow, that it's okay. But that what was more important was to basically just be with that person at that meeting. Now, I know that seems really basic, but sometimes it was very difficult for me to do. And um, I've read, you know, accounts of professionals in completely different contexts who have said the same thing in a way. You know, Arthur Ashe used to meditate between sets when he played. I don't know if you ever watched, remember Milt Wimbledon, when Arthur Ashe played Jimmy Connors. And between sets, he was meditating. And when asked why, he goes, well, it slows the, day, the, the game down for me. And I said, aha, <laughs> I, I know what you mean. You know, I get that. You know? um, so this idea of slowing the day down was a big, a big one for me. Um, the other thing that meditation gave to me is the gift of stability. So the spirit of attention, but also the gift of stability. And there's this wonderful metaphor that John Maine has in his writings about how, think of meditation in terms of you're in a small boat on the ocean, which becomes extremely rough. And this little boat is being buffeted about, but you drop the anchor and the anchor descends into the dark stillness and hits the ocean floor and gives you that stability. And of course, what's great about John Maine, he says, and of course, in a couple of hours, that anchor will be dislodged. But the great practicality of meditation is that you meditate again. So there's this practical rhythm that allows you to fail but to re-anchor, to fail, but to re-anchor. And I, I found it really helpful because I would get very anxious. I, you know, my, my staff used to tease me because, you know, I would approach everything in my work as a pessimist. In other words, I always planned for the worst. I used to say that in defense that the difference between optimist and pessimist was that pessimists had better information. <laughs> but I think I was just rationalizing my own anxiety. I mean, you know, the, the economists have this expression, the central scenario. Well, for me, the central scenario was always the worst case scenario. And I forced my staff to basically constantly prepare for the worst. And, you know, I, I realized that I had, and this was a function of sort of my anxiety of feeling that everything was going to go wrong. And, you know, meditation would help me re-anchor during the day. And it's interesting, physically, the med you know, the IMF actually had a meditation room. Mm -hmm. And it was great because the meditation room was in the basement. So I would go down the elevator yeah. to the red level, which was the deepest level. And I felt like, you know, it was a great symbol for me of sort of going down. 
So this, this gift of stability was also another, a very important point. And, and sometimes I would just, I mean, sometimes it wasn't, you know, I would, I would have a big board meeting and I would be very nervous and I would just leave 10 minutes early and go down to the bed level um, and, um, and drop that anchor. It was very helpful for me. Um, third area is perhaps the most important. And by the way, before I get to the third area, I, when we, we give this course at Georgetown, these students are in their late 20s, early 30s. This is the business school. And um, Lawrence does this wonderful set of interviews with them after, after the course, and they also keep a journal. So we get to know them, and it's amazing, and you know, we forget this, but this is a period of tremendous anxiety for them. Right, they've, they've graduated from university, so they've left sort of the cocoon of home. They are now confronting the reality of, that it's an incredibly different, difficult job market, it's competitive. They're also dealing with not being entirely sure what they want to do. So there's a lot going on, a lot of insecurity, a lot of anxiety. And what was really interesting was to see how many of them talked about how the wonderful thing about meditation, it was a place that felt where they, could, they felt safe, where they felt safe and they could achieve a degree of stillness. Um, and that was one of the constant sort of themes in, um, in the interviews. So I think they also, like me, it was a good way for them to achieve some stability. So, but the third area is in some respects for leadership, the most important, which is this idea of the spirit of detachment. And I, I'm always searching for a better word. I think the Dalai Lama uses the word equanimity. Um, but again, you know, when you meditate, the idea is you, you, you lay aside your thoughts, right? And of course, your, your thoughts do not want to be put aside, so they come back. But you constantly lay aside your thoughts. And the process of laying aside your thoughts is a process where you experience yourself as, as not being your thoughts. You actually begin to experience yourself as something bigger, and something better than your thoughts. And you are able to achieve a certain degree of control over your thoughts. And that, for me, was an experience which I also tried to replicate outside of my meditation. And when I say my thoughts, really, it's, thoughts are, is a word, so much of this is language. It's, thoughts are, is a word that encompasses not just ideas, but also emotions, feelings, insecurities, anxieties, fantasies, ideology. And what I found is that that detachment gave me a perspective, or another way of putting it, it reduced their power over me. So that the decision-making process 
was one that became a process where I was no, I was no longer controlled by those. Because the problem with making decisions when you are completely under the influence of your fears, your anxieties, your ambitions, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, your ego, which is probably the biggest issue, is that you don't see things as they really are. You're projecting all of this onto the information that you have. And as a result of that, you miss things that are there, and you see things that are not there. So for me, it helped me actually be basically what I call make more reality-based decisions. Make decisions on the basis of what's there rather than what I'm fantasizing about. And I've talked about this with other members of the community, and it's really interesting because you know, some of us are in very different fields. Um, one of my good friends, whom many of you know, is Peter Ng, who is one of the most successful investors. And he says exactly the same thing, in a much more articulate way, about how he invests in the market. And what Peter says is that what he does in meditation has helped him invest in the market because it's enabled him to look at the market without the baggage of his own assumptions, biases, and he's able to make much better decisions. And, you know, this is really important for leaders because when you are given a position of leadership, what's asked of you is not to analyze lots of information, but to make judgments. And often you're asked to make judgments that are really difficult, which is why they've come to you, because they couldn't, they didn't, they either disagree or they didn't want to make this judgment because it was too difficult. And often you're asked to make a judgment, you're asked to choose between two very bad options on the basis of incomplete information. And often you don't have a lot of time to think about it. And in that environment, being able to make reality-based decisions, where you're able to put aside a lot of your emotions and anxieties, is extremely important. Um, I think that, um, actually, if you, you know, this is one of the persons who was, was also, who talked about this a lot, was um, Alexander Hamilton, the American um, Secretary of Treasury, when he says, you know, most men, they use the word men there rather than persons in the 18th century. So most persons see what they want to see. I try to see what it actually is doesn't mean that you, you're not an idealist. On the contrary, I think it's important that you have your ideals, but when pushing those ideals, you really need to be able to see things as they are, as our temptation often, 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 
is to simplify things so that it's easier. I mean, you look at the soundbite politics we live in. And, you know, Einstein was right. He said, you know, you should make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. And sometimes things are complex. There are important nuances, and it's important that we accept those and, and work our way through them. Because if you oversimplify the problem, you're going to oversimplify the solution. So this idea of dealing with complexity, with nuance, through reality-based decisions, it's something that I think is really important for leaders. You know, there's a downside risk in that. Sometimes you, you hear too many voices. You, you, you're, you're looking at things. I mean, but I think on balance, that's what people want from leaders. They don't want people who shoot from the hips but understand the complexity and are able to put it in perspective. Um, the, the, but the other thing that you need to put aside and this, <laughs> this deserves its own discussion, is your ego. Because this is perhaps the thing that I think interferes with good decisions amongst leaders more than anything else. And let's be frank about this. It's a self-selective process. People who exercise leadership are often people who have relatively big egos. That's how they got there. They tend to basically project themselves, feel that what they have to say is perhaps a little bit more important than what other people have to say. So it is, it is a self-selective process. And, you know, Lincoln said this. He was one of the most, I'm sure he meditated. I'm sure he did. He said that um, if you want all, all, again, he used the word men, all men can handle adversity. That's not the issue. If you really want to check a person's character, give them power. Because that's what's going to reveal who they really are. Can they control their ego? Or is it become just a function of their ego? And I think the leaders that have are the most effective are those who fundamentally view their role not as being an exercise of power, but an expression of service, who actually view their work as service. And I have to tell you that there were so many times in the fund when there was an issue that would come up. And what I, and, and I learned this by reading this wonderful book by the Dalai Lama called um, um, Beyond Religion, which if, if, if you haven't read, I strongly recommend it. And he said, because he, he gets pretty analytical, and he goes, you know, whenever you are confronted with a, a difficult decision, first of all, make sure you know where you're coming from. What is your motivation? If it's for purposes of basically power and ego, stop yourself from making any decisions and try to redirect it in terms of service. That's part of his whole sort of compassion and other-centeredness. 
And believe it or not, I, I would do that at the fund, and sometimes you know, an issue would come up, and my initial reaction was was, 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 was this something that would be good for my department? Is this something that would help me? Is this something that's going to you know, expand my power network in the institution? And I, would, I learned to be able to stop myself and say, but okay, so hold on a second. What is gonna be the best for the institution? Now, I was not always successful, but I found myself doing that. And it was a very helpful check. And it gave me criteria for how to make decisions. And um, it was useful because working in an organization is a repeat game. And even though as a result of that, I would end up saying, well, actually, notwithstanding the fact that this is not going to be the interest of my department, I would recommend that we do Y for the benefit of the institution. And that would really surprise people. And in the long term, it actually gave me more influence in the institution because people felt that I was coming from a bigger space. So this, this, this idea of looking at your work, because I have to tell you, you know, you spend most of your life at work. And, you know, this idea that, I think Mark Carney put this extremely well in one of the speeches that he made, um, that you really can't compartmentalize your life, and you have to realize that the values that you have in your, your family life, the values that we have in this room as we talk about meditation, are values that you really, you have, no, you have to bring to your work. Um, and then the final thing I want to talk about is the relationship with people. In fact, I think we're getting to that point, which is, and it relates to ego, is as a leader, you're the one who's the most visible, and, and yet you realize that your job is not really about projecting yourself. It's really, I mean, this is something that I learned the hard way. I became general counsel at a relatively young age, at the age of 46. And um, I, succeeded somebody who had been in the job for a long time, who was a, a giant, a very well-known lawyer. And I started the job with a tremendous amount of insecurity. And of course, what did I do? I, can, I wanted to convince everybody, including myself, that I was the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> I wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. So I did everything. I wrote every memo. If somebody came, came up, I rewrote it. I was at every meeting. I wanted to show that I was on top of everything. I almost destroyed myself, but more importantly, I almost destroyed my department. I sucked all the oxygen out of the air, and I began to realize, listen, Sean, this is not your job. Your job is not to be the leader in terms of projecting. Your job is to actually not be indispensable, but actually to become as dispensable as possible. That's your job. 
So your job is to actually empower other people. It doesn't mean that you're not involved in all the details. You are, but you're doing it from behind the scenes. So that you're constantly pushing and encouraging your team to basically be more visible. And I'll be very frank, one of the nicest things that happened in my career was when I retired, many people said, you know, there's a really good team, so we're really not going to miss Sean that much. <laughs> but I mean this, they were very nice to me and everything, but it was the nicest thing, which was that there was a sense that everything was going to be fine. And you know what? Everything is okay, because, and it wouldn't have been that case if, if <laughs> 14 years ago, because, and meditation helped me understand that, that that's my role, because it helped me develop, develop a sense of other-centeredness. And, you know, that's one of the sort of contradictions in meditation, because you, you know, it's a solitary practice. It's something you do, it's almost, it, it could seem almost indulgent, because you're spending time just with yourself, but it's the best thing you can do for other people. It's a gift for other people. Um, so I just want to maybe conclude by making some general points that are beyond leadership, um, because it's really taught, it's difficult to compartmentalize. The first is that you know this 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 experience this experience of other centeredness is really about more generally gaining a perspective of a world where you no longer occupy the center. It's a bit like being the Galileo, you know, where Galileo said, you know, the Earth's not the center, you know, we're just orbiting the sun. It's a bit like the Galileo moment when you undertake that. You're really not the center of the world. Um, the second is, as I said, once you internalize that, you begin to realize that a lot of the meaning that you get out of your life is not by focusing on yourself, but actually by focusing on others. That you actually get, that's how you get happiness out of your life. And if you read Don Dalai Lama's book, he constructs a spirituality based on this concept of happiness through the exercise of compassion. And his whole approach is how do you, how do you develop a capacity for greater compassion? And of course, one of the tools that he advocates is meditation. The next thing I would say is that when you talk about all these issues intellectually, none of them really seem that novel. But the fundamental aspect of meditation is that it's not intellectual, it's experiential. And it's not achieved through the rational process, but through the contemplative process. And so this is where, this is why it has the power that it does. You actually experience yourself as being somebody bigger than your anxieties. You experience yourself as being someone who wants to actually empower others. Um, and I think that is 
this is why, in some respects, it is a spiritual experience, because you, you experience this connection, which you will not get, at least I don't get, through any other practice. The fourth thing I would say is that it's, it, it's, it can be painful. Um, you know, one of the benefits of living in a world, your own world, with these fantasies and anxieties, or this, you know, this idea, a non-reality-based world, is that you can construct an artificial world that's very comfortable for you, where you, everything that happens, you blame on other people. And we've, we've all met people who are like that, partly because part of us is like that. And it's, you always recognize it in other people because you recognize it in yourself. But, you know, where, where you, something happens and you can blame it on others and you construct this. And, and what's painful about meditation is that it kind of forces you to take responsibility for things in a greater way. And that can be painful. But it's, it's, it's a less comfortable world to live in. But it's a world where you grow. And it's wonderful entries by John Mayne where he says what would be terrifying in life is where you don't grow and that that's the greatest thing about meditation is that you actually experience your life as a process of growth which for someone in your middle age or late middle age instead of experiencing your life just as aging but actually experiencing it as a process of growth is a very uplifting experience um, and the final thing I would say is that meditation is, is, is liberating because as you go through life, you realize that as much as you try to control things, as much as you, you try to plan, things go wrong. Um, and that can be really upsetting. Um, but meditation is great because you realize that the one thing you can control is your own state of mind. It's the one thing you can control. And there is this wonderful Buddhist writer, I'm sure you've, some of you read him, Shantideva, who has this great metaphor of, you know, you, you live in a house, you, you open the door one day, and the ground is covered with thorns. You have a choice. You can stay in your house. You can get on your hands and knees and spend your life cutting these thorns, or you can wear a pair of shoes. So his point is, don't change the world, change yourself. And to pick another philosopher is the John Wooden, who was the UCLA coach in basketball, used to tell his players, don't compare yourself to other people because you can't control them. You can't control them. Just compare yourself to yourself. Or, you know, and, that, and that's... A, I'm sure he meditated as well. Because <laughs> I thought that was a very spiritual, spiritual point. So 
Um, I will, I will um, conclude there and just to, you know, just to say that um, I, all of this should not suggest that I have mastered any of this. I feel I've been meditating for a long time, uh, over 30 years, even though I with the community for 12 years. You know, I still feel like I'm a beginner. Um, I feel I go backwards sometimes. Um, I miss my practice sometimes. But it has become a part of my life that basically gives me this anchor. Um, and I cannot imagine, you know, where I would be without it today. So um, for any of you that are um, beginning the practice, um, if you feel frustrated, join the club. If you fall asleep in the afternoons when you're meditating, join the club. Even John Main fell asleep. I don't know if you saw that in his, some of his entries. But welcome because it's, um, you're going to find it a place that you will enjoy. You'll find it that it's your home. Thank you very much. Yeah, so um, I agree with that. I mean, I think that in my remarks this evening, I started off by talking about skills, right? You know, multitasking, better decisions. But as I progressed, I was getting into values. You know, compassion, integrity. I think it's really important, integrity. Um, and. It's, integrity is, is a word that has, you know, it requires, you have to un unpack it, but I think authenticity is a big part of integrity. Um, and, you know, people talk about different management techniques. I believe that none of them are important relative to trust. And trust comes from authenticity. If people know that you're not playing games, that you are who you are, even if sometimes you lose it and you get upset, if people feel that you're being transparent and open, they will trust you. So it's, in my view, in my experience as a leader, I was much more effective if I was open and expressed my anxieties, uh, my doubts, than if I was someone who was, and it's, it's ironic because some people say, you know, leaders should always project this incredible optimism. The problem is that I'm not so sure people trust people like that because I think that people know that things are not okay all the time. 
doesn't mean that you're constantly in a therapy session with your staff. I don't mean that. But I do feel that being open, being vulnerable, being willing to admit you make mistakes, this is a big problem for leaders. It partly gets through ego, is that they feel that if they admit a mistake, they're going to be smaller. What an irony. When somebody makes a mistake and they can't admit it, do they get bigger or smaller? I think they get much smaller. When they admit their mistake, they get bigger. So this idea of values, authenticity, integrity, um, I think is really important. Um, so yes, thank you. You've worked so much on the international arena. And I just wondered if you could give some perspectives on where you think we are now in terms of what we see more and more of are the power plays, um, less of the servant leadership, less of other-centeredness in terms of recognizing we are one family, um, much more xenophobia. And at the same time, there seems to be a rise in consciousness of spirituality and meditation and practices. Um, how do we tip that balance and cultivate, uh, particularly amongst international leaders, more of a sense of other centers? Yeah, it's a, it's a depressing time. Um, you know, I worked in an organization which was founded 70, over 70 years ago on this, this, this idea that economic nationalism was destructive, that it was actually one of the major causes for the Second World War, because it creates an anxiety and when people have anxieties, they look for scapegoats. So it creates racism. It creates you know, exclusion. And that to address that, you needed to basically have the machinery for international cooperation. And to really commit to that, even when it's difficult. And therefore, they created these institutions that would manage the process. And even binding rules so that countries would be like, you know, Odysseus in the ship between the, you know, Scyllus and Charybdis, who would, even though they were tempted, they would continue to do this. Well, it's really tragic to see that the two countries that were the pillars of that, the US and the UK, have retreated from that and that the politics have become so tribal. Um, if they meditated, would, <laughs> would it make a difference? Absolutely. In my um, I mean, you look at what's going on right now and I, I do try to follow it quite closely and, and the extent to which people have lost perspective on what is the common interest versus what is, what they perceive as being their interest. I mean, this whole issue about power and everything, it just, it translates exactly into that, right? So I think it's really tragic. Um, and, you know, I, but I, I do believe, I, 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 
I, I really do believe that this is a blip. That we are not going into a long-term decline. And that both the US and the UK will revert back to a degree of decency on these issues. Um, why do I say that? <laughs> I know my own country better than the UK. In the UK, in the US, I believe it because I think that when you look demographically at the United States, it's a much more diverse and tolerant country. And that that is the critical mass that's growing and growing and growing. And therefore, I view what's going on now as almost being the last gasp of a dying ideology. This is my own perspective. I can't speak to the UK. So I am optimistic that things are, are, are going to get better. Um, but I, I, I think that the promise, Inga, is in the diversity and the fact that there's you know, people learn to be tolerant um, and progressive. work in a political environment. So what, what you were saying about ego-driven leadership really resonated with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, politics is the worst, I think. And um, we know how leaders influence the culture of their organisations. Mm. And so I'm interested in your thoughts on how within organisations we can do counter-cultural um, where the prevailing leadership model is not to be other-centered. Yeah, I, I, I really, I, it's a good question I, I, how to do that. I, so people have asked me this question, whether or not I, I took a leadership position in the fund in advocating sort of meditation, and I did not. I did not because I didn't want people to meditate because the boss meditated. I was very, I felt very strongly about that. Invariably, people would find out that I meditated. And if they came to me and asked me about it, then I would sit down with them and encourage them to meditate. But I would not have organized sessions because I didn't, I felt uncomfortable because I felt that people would be doing it for the wrong reason. I think leading by example is, the best thing you can do, rather than try to proselytize when it came to leadership habits. Um, I think what was great about the fund is it had its share of egos. But fundamentally, the great thing about the IMF was that it was a, it was a team-oriented place. You succeeded in the fund when you worked well with other people. If you were a whiner or a peacock, you didn't do as well. And that was the culture of the institution. And we did have our whiners and we did have our peacocks, but generally the ones that did well were the ones that learned how to work with people. Did, did your, um, your recognition of, sort of wanting to develop your spiritual life, that come 
before you started meditating, or did it come out of the disaster? So yeah, I, <laughs> I, um, I was brought up a Catholic. I had a a, a mother who was uh, half Portuguese, half Spanish. She was an American citizen, but her, you know she was originally from Portuguese and Spain. And she had a a very traditional view of Catholicism. I remember all the children kneeling around the bed saying the rosary. I was sent to an English boarding school, um, a, a Jesuit school, a place called Stonyhurst, okay. which, if you've ever read Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, which takes place in Clongos, Clongos is the sister school of Stonyhurst in Ireland. And when I read that, it was like, my God, I was reading my, um, my school days where religion was very much about instilling fear and sin. So I, it was a powerful experience for me, but, but not all of it was negative, not all of the feelings were negative, but I had this very specific religious upbringing. And like many people, when I reached the age of maturity, 18 to 21, I completely rejected it. And I went on my own. And I began to realize probably around the age of 26, 27, that I was missing something. It happened that I was, I had just become a lawyer and I was working in New York and then got assigned to live in Tokyo for three years. So I arrived in Japan and I was on my own. I felt quite lonely. And you know, when you feel lonely, you tend to think about spiritual things because sometimes human companionship can be a distraction from spiritual, at least for me. So I found myself searching spiritually and um, I, found, I discovered meditation you know, through Zen practice, but completely unrelated to Christianity, just, you know. And I found it very powerful, but I was still missing something. I didn't realize it completely, but I was still missing something. And so I came back from Japan, I worked at the fund, I continued to meditate in sort of a non Christian tradition until I read The Good Heart. In fact, it's serendipitous. That book is staring me in the face right now. There it is. That book. And that was when I said, that's it. I'm going to be able to take this contemplative experience, but root it in my own Christian identity. And you may remember that one of the first things that the Dalai Lama says in that book is that don't switch your religions. It's, you know, the religions, it's like this, you know, the Jungian collective unconscious. There's, an un, there's, a, there's, a, there's a deep reservoir, there's a deep experience of your own religion that you have. Use that and redirect it in a way. And that's, that's, that's what meditation has allowed me to do. Mm -hmm. 